Top of the news this evening is speculation concerning the real facts behind the Department of Health announcement about a radioactive spill supposed to have occurred yesterday at the state nuclear plant. You will die only to live again in a younger body. Then you can tell me if the operation was a success. I could easily kill you now, but I'm determined to have your brain. You're listening to the Really Awful Movies Podcast, a celebration of genre cinema. Hi, my name is Chris, and along with Jeff, we talk about movies that aren't really awful at all. Horror, action, kung fu, musicals, post-apocalyptic, women in prison films, and much, much more. Welcome to a special edition of the Really Awful Movies Podcast. It's Alive, Classic Horror and Sci-Fi Art is a collection being exhibited at the Royal Ontario Museum, not too far from our show's downtown Toronto headquarters. It's been meticulously put together over three decades by a man who's in our minds the most humble and interesting member of the rock band Metallica, guitarist Kirk Hammett. The title of the exhibition, It's Alive, is almost ironic. These promotional horror and sci-fi posters, paintings, lobby cards, seen as low-end cultural detritus, were very much left for dead, and very few of them remain. And yet, like the zombie films they often depict, these art projects have risen from the dead and continue to elicit wonder and discovery. The art world's two most prominent posthumously celebrated artists are Johannes Vermeer, a middling success during his lifetime, and Vincent van Gogh whose oil-on-canvas portrait of a bored, disaffected doctor, Dr. Gachet, was the single painting he sold during his lifetime. At least those two have had their names memorialized. The thing about Hammett's collection is it's the work of many hands. Scribbling, painting, and sketching hands. Work for higher types whose names, unfortunately, will never be known. Luckily for all of us, their art has and will stand the test of time. The Royal Ontario Museum's mandate is to ensure wonder and discovery, and in hosting this exhibition, it is doing both, by ensuring these works are enjoyed in their own right, but also by aiding in the discovery of the often exemplary films with which they've been inextricably associated. The following is what we hope you'll find an illuminating discussion between one of Rock's most celebrated guitarists, Kirk Hammett, and Dan Finnamore, curator at Salem, Massachusetts Peabody Essex Museum, who worked with Hammett to conceive the exhibition. We urge listeners to go see the exhibit, 135 works celebrating the fringes of 20th century cinema in all its extraordinary beauty for themselves. It's running until January 20th at the Royal Ontario Museum here in Toronto. Thanks for listening. We are very proud to be the sole Canadian venue to showcase It's Alive, classic horror and sci-fi art from the Kirk Hammett Collection, especially in the presence of the collector himself. We have an inspiring, thought-provoking discussion ahead of us that will provide insight into the tremendous collection we have on display and its historical significance and contemporary relevance. Please join me again in welcoming Kirk Hammett and Daniel Finnemore to the podium. To, to see other people and enjoy it as much as 
I do, and you know, I'm, I'm just really super excited about about the, the the whole show, the exhibition in general. So you've been collecting your whole adult life, and you've loved these things individually, and you've arranged them into groups that happen to please you. But now you see them in a museum where there's at least a quasi-didactic structure where people rationalize, they see groupings, they understand what Lachlan Josh was talking about, some of the motivations behind creating them. That's different than what you did. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, I, I, that's another a thing that's really interesting is, is how they're being displayed upstairs. Uh, there's one particular aspect of, of, of how it unfolds, which is really, really great, how it's all, all, uh, all uh, arranged so that every time you, you turn a corner, there's just something else that, that just hits you with a lot of impact. And it's, uh, it, it was a lot of fun for me to see that. And uh, there's at, at one point, I was looking at, at, at how everything was displayed, and I looked at a certain angle, and, and, and from that angle, I could see three floating Frankenstein heads. And it was just really amazing. Um, and you can only see it from, if you're like 30 feet away, and you see the three posters. And with the way that they're just kind of angled, it's just, it's really great to see. Uh, it's almost poetic to me. I, I can understand that. The graphics are so powerful and strong to think you know what you're looking at or to see them in reproductions is not the same as seeing these uh, original works and the scale that they hold and some of the beautiful printing and lithography. Um, you clearly have an appreciation for the people who created these posters as artists. Now, they were work for hire. They are anonymous for the most part. They were prevented from signing their posters and um, they created some amazing things that show fantastic creativity and emotional expression. Um, you, as an artist yourself, who does get great acclaim, I mean, how do you think about these people? Do you think they uh, enjoyed their work? Do you think they were frustrated? Um, we don't really don't know, so I, I assume that you have to envision this. Well, I mean, when I see these posters, and particularly the ones from, from the early 30s, there, there are there are artists that that, that, that you can see that done numerous posters. And I'm always struck by just how much commitment they put into it. I mean, it showed that they really wanted to convey emotion and they really took the time to do that. I mean, it's really amazing. And you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, when you said how, how these artists were anonymous, I mean, one day, someone should, should erect a, a, a monument to the anonymous artist. <laughs> Just like the, 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 like the art detail is a tribute to the, you know, the unknown soldier. There should be a monument to, to the, uh, the anonymous artist, you know? It's fabulous. I, I think someone will get on that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just interesting. Well, I, I think you've pointed out to me in many places where you can see the same hand at work across different across different films, yeah. you know that there's somebody there who was core to the whole process, but his name will never really know. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a shame too, because, yeah. I'm curious to see if, if they moved on to other fields, you know, other 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 fields of illustration or whatnot, and, and who knows? I mean, there's absolutely no information. So, not for lack of looking, people have looked, and it's just these archives just, just don't exist. So you told me about one poster in particular, which I think if I push the green button, will magically appear. There we are. Um, one of your personal favorites. Why don't you just tell us about it? Talk us through this poster. What do you like about it? Well, it's well, for one, it's just like it's so visually striking. I mean, the colors just leap out. When I first saw that, that poster, and I had never seen it before because it was a poster that had not been printed yet, and this was like in the early 80s when I first saw that poster, I was just amazed at how, how I couldn't look away. I mean, it, it, 
the imagery of, of Boris Karloff in, 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 in vivid color as the mummy was striking to me because that, that image in my mind was always black and white. And so to see it in full color like that was mesmerizing. And then to see uh, uh, Zita Johan uh, uh, kind of like draped over that, that uh, uh, what looks like a tombstone and, and just like the glamour and the elegance of, of uh, how she's situated, and it, it's 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 almost a, a, you know a, a kind of like yin yang sort of like uh, uh, a presentation, of, um, and, and you know the, the just the, there's I think that there's just so much to this poster that that just struck me that that I just thought to myself, wow, I mean. Yeah, I have to see more of these, and it, it just really got me on my, on my journey to just find these posters, or just to find pictures of these posters, just to see what they look like, and to see these 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 characters in color, illustrated in color, because in my mind up to that point they're always in black and white. I think you told you pointed out that the fact that his uh, the mummy is green was real, that he turns up in the movie cards as green, but that the film, of course, was black and white because... Yeah, that, that, uh, because green on, on black and white film uh, shot at, at, as, as pale white. And you know, I don't know the, the, the mechanics of that, but um, a lot of the, of, uh, the, 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 the characters, like Frankenstein's monster was also green, because of black and white film, it would read as pale white. And so a lot of the lobby cards, a lot of the posters were, were designed by the illustrators who were on set. So no one told them that the reason why these creatures were, or these characters were green was because of, because of their being filmed. So they just, they, they, they illustrated them as they saw them. And so that's why I come up with green in this poster. And that is why I reached to the back of my closet the other day and I pulled out this shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really pleased to see you've got some in your own shirt. <laughs> but you also pointed out to me once, I, my perspective on this poster shifted. I've always loved the movie and I've always thought about it as a timepiece, which is about ancient Egyptian archaeology. Um, but that figure of the woman is it is yeah. a classic 1930s look, and so ancient and modern go hand in hand. Yeah, that was a, that was a fascinating insight to me. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, it's interesting too. It comes to life. I mean, this poster literally, when I see it, it comes to life in my mind. And that that tagline, you know, it, it's really suggestive. Um, there's so much. There's to me. The way the, the this this uh, poster is illustrated, there, I, I get you know a feeling of romance. I get a feeling of like uh, uh, elegance. You know, I get a, a feeling of of of, uh, of like uh, other things other than than horror or being being afraid or or, or scared or whatever. And you know, I, I, a lot of the posters from the '30s are are kind of designed in that fashion too. And I think the reason for that is because in the 20s and 30s, romantic films were the, the most popular type of film. And so to reel in that, that type of audience, these posters were illustrated with an element of, of romance uh, uh, or subplot. Of, they're written with a subplot of romance. And that's why you, know, you would always see couples or you know, monster chasing a woman or whatever. I mean, it was because of the, that, that whole angle that was just very, very popular at the time. Yeah, the mummy was quite a romantic character. It wasn't his fault. And Frank nice monster, but the most romantic character was Dracula. And I truly believe that. We'll get there in a minute. Yeah, right. So your collection is, as I knew, sort of falls into three categories. You've got posters, and you've got film props, and you've got toys. So in what order did you start to collect these things? Did you get your hands back on? Well, yeah, I, 
truly, I, I, I collected comic books uh, as, a, as a kid and monster magazines as a kid, and I started collecting that stuff when I was six years old, so six, seven years old, and collected all throughout my childhood. And uh, I, I discovered music around 12, 13 years old, and I discovered guitar when I was 15 years old. And all my collecting kind of fell to the wayside because I was busy collecting riffs and chords and scales and all that sort of stuff. But that, that, that collecting bug was always in the back of my mind, kind of just percolating, you know, just kind of like on pause. And then later on, when, I, you know, when the band started getting more successful, I jumped right back into it because um, it, it was just always there and just always kind of reminding me that I still had that fascination and and still had that kind of, of need to, to just fill my, my 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 life with this kind of stuff and I just jumped in at first. In all three categories then? Uh, well, yeah, to answer your question. I started off with comics and magazines, and then as I got back into it, I started uh, buying a lot of uh, uh, more rare 1960s monster toys, and then I got into, uh, into more of the artwork, and then I bought a movie poster, I put it up on the wall, and I thought, wow, that's just great. And it wasn't really you know, a particularly rare or special movie poster. It was a, a poster that I really, really enjoyed. It was the Gordon. From, uh, 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 from, uh, uh, yeah, from 1965 or something, a hammer film. And I just thought it was a great striking image. And then I got an opportunity to buy, the, buy a Bride of Frankenstein half sheet. And when I bought that, all of a sudden, I just, I remember taking it out, 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 of, the, uh, out of the package that was, that was mailed to me and just looking at it going, Wow, this is an incredible relic from that time, from the year that that movie was made, and it's it's beautiful. And what the, what does this all mean? You jumped in to the deep end. Deep, deep, you got head first, all the way. You know, it's just like where do I sign? Yeah, I, I mean, I was intrigued from that moment, and you know. Very, very excited, and, and I put it up, and you know, I just stared at it for years. So, so the toys, and a, a lot of the toys were rare even in their day. Some of them, people say, oh, I don't know one of those, but to a large extent, these were specialized things. Do you have a favorite toy today? I mean, I, I think it's probably not fair to ask you what was the first one you collected because you were. Well, yeah, I really like their their Aurora monster models because they they, they really were. Iconic uh, for me because when I was a, a, a kid, I would buy those models, I'd put them together, I'd paint them, I'd, I'd put all this time and care into making sure that they were really, really great, and then I'd blow them up with firecrackers, <laughs> <laughs> throw them off the roof. Today, I worked for like years and did this. <laughs> Ask me, do you have any of that stuff from as you're a child? I was like, no, are you kidding me? I destroyed all of it. <laughs> you had to start all over again. Yeah, because you know, I like to start all over again. It's a fun thing to do. So the show includes a poster, its original art, and a segment of the first horror film you ever saw, which of course you like many kids, you watch this stuff and you're scared, but at some point in time you realize, hey, this is actually Funny, right? Yeah. So, what is it in your mind about the relationship? What is it about horror and about comedy? What horror and, and comedy? Oh, comedy. What? What? I mean, some of the greatest horror films out there are, 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 are films that are really scary. But then, then two minutes later, you're happy, you know. And for me, that's oh, that's it's it's the best best of both worlds. I see uh, horror films as kind of like amusement ride. 
rides, you know, different types of amusement rides. But the best horror films are the ones that just go up and down. It's just like a the roller coaster, like, you know, Evil Dead 2 is an incredibly funny film. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is an incredibly funny film. The Bride of Frankenstein is an incredibly funny film. I mean, there are a lot of great, great films out there that just, that just uh, are, are kind of like a, a, just a rocking boat ride, as if you like this. But I mean, to, to really answer your question, you know, when I saw my, my first horror movie, Day of the Triffids, I was, uh, again, just mesmerized by the intensity of the film, uh, the drama of it, and my mind clicking going, this is different from all those Disney films that I've been seeing. <laughs> all this all small Disney stuff that uh, my parents were pushing on me. And, and from that moment on, I, I, I sought out other horror films, and literally like a year later, the, uh, the, the wave of, uh, of horror hosts appeared all, all over syndicated television all throughout uh, all throughout the states and they would you know these TV stations would play these old horror films and they'd have a horror host who'd come on and, and host uh, the, um, the film you know like um, a good ex modern example would be uh, Elvira uh, but you know, people have been doing the, this stuff since the 50s. Anyway, there's a, 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 a horror show that came on, and I was glued to it. Every Saturday, 9 p.m., me and my, my friends, we just, we lived by that stuff. And, and um, I'm still waiting for, for it to fade away, and it hasn't. And there's a lot of great horror films that I still need to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, right. all this time. Yeah. I think they have some pretty good cable in your hotel room. <laughs> so tell us a bit about Frank Frazetta and Basil Gobos. You've some wonderful original art in this exhibition by these two artists. And uh, you've met them both, right? And so, you know, they're not poster artists, but they did covers for magazines that you collected. You started out with creepy and things, monsters of film films. So how do you perceive them fitting into your collection overall? Well, well, Frank Rosetta, for one, I mean, he was responsible for a lot of really, really great, great uh, magazine covers for Creepy Magazine, Period Magazine, and he did a lot of uh, stuff for, for uh, a lot of big uh, publishing houses. He did a lot of paperback covers. And there was a time in the 70s where it was just, as a kid, so almost everywhere I looked, you know, I'd see Frank Vizetta poster or book cover or, or you know, whatever calendar, and um, and it, it it was his artwork just it was just so haunting, and and anyone who's familiar with his work will just will, will just will know that when you first see Frank Vizetta's stuff, it it, it looks otherworldly, it, 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 it looks familiar, but it. It's not familiar, and, and you know, the the, the women look otherworldly and, and just voluptuous, but but not. It's just like you know, all, all the all the men look really just like muscular, but just like unrealistic. It's it's really it's he puts he puts my mind into this other world where it's, everything is just frankly said of and it really feels like he's not really, not really painting a portrait, but kind of like opening a portal to this world where everything looks like that. I mean, it's his 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 artwork is so stylized to me that it just it seems like a whole other universe. It's like from for a museum standpoint, I can say it's like an alternate art history. It's like he doesn't fit into the model at all, but. He's got his devotees for sure. Basil Gogos. Yeah, Basil Gogos was a, a, another artist who's just his whole take on on on, on portraits, and that's what he did. He, he did portraits of, of all, all these all these horror characters and all these monsters. His whole take was because he was just working from black and white stills. Was he would imagine what it would be like with three. Colored lights shined on these characters.
you would take a black white picture and just imagine it this light and then paint it that way. And I just thought that, wow, that's just such an amazing way to approach things. And it, it brought out such an amazing effect. Again, you were seeing these, 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 these personalities that you would associate with in black and white, all of a sudden full color and raging psychedelic color. I mean, not just like, you know, colorized, but in the late 60s and 70s, when the hippie thing was going full swing, there, there's full-on psychedelic renditions of a lot of these, these, these monsters. I love the fact that you've taken those paintings and you've put them in fancy gold frames as if they're ancient European masters. But I also know that you are pretty well versed in the fine arts, the more traditional fine arts, shall we say, as well. Um, do you care to talk about some artists that jazz you or something wonderful you've seen here in your short stay? Uh, I have to say, I mean, what, right when I walked in, I saw those two giant totems. Did you guys see that on the left and right? Or are they this way, this way? They're amazing. I, you know, I, I'd seen totems, totem poles of it in, in, in Alaska, but those are the biggest ones I've ever seen, and I was just kind of blown away by that. I mean, I intend to do a, a, a walk around, um, but yeah, those totems are just completely breathtaking. I was just in Florence. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of museums there. <laughs> Frisetta's Frank's? Pardon? Do they know who Frank Frisetta is? No, I was, uh, you know, I, I, I wish I could just brag to the, 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 those people, hey, I, I got a couple Frisettas, but they're just like, you know, whatever. <laughs> I, was at, I was at one museum, and um, it's one with the Italian name that I can't pronounce. And I went there just to see the one, this one painting, and, and I, you might be familiar with it. It's a, a shield with a gordy on it. It's a you know, classical painting from the 6th, 17th century. That museum was huge, and I looked for it forever and ever, and I found it 45 minutes. I was so happy to find it. You did find it? Yeah, you did find it. Did you happen to walk by a woman on a shelf? Yeah, that one's easy to. Yeah, that one's easy to find. Just check yeah, out. That one then is just you know. You know, I appreciate a, 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 a broke European art that after like four hundred and fifty <laughs> sightings, it's it gets it's hard. It's a big museum. I didn't I didn't start I didn't study that period of art. So. Okay, go ahead. So let's get back to some of the true classics, some of those films that you're so interested in, because at yeah, the core, really, is um, Frankenstein, the Mummy, and Dracula. But those sort of <coughs> come out of the earliest uh, films, which are sort of those classic uh, stories, so these early romantic stories, you know, like your Alan Poe and Victor Hugo. And these things still resonate with people today. Um, I think that's really fascinating. Uh, is it the complexity? Tell me what you think. Why would people watch a 1930s film, Victor Hugo, rather than what um, is being put out today? Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting question. I mean, uh, I, the way I see these, these, these movies, The Mummy, Frankenstein, Dracula, you know, I, I think that the, the, the that even though they, they have their origins in, 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 in European culture, you know, I, I truly think that, that, that these are you know, America's uh, fairy tales, you know, they're like our, our grim fairy tales, or, you know, they're kind of like our, our fables. Uh, you know, we're, I, I truly believe that, that they're, they're you know, products of, of, of American culture, you know, 20th century American culture. And, you know, I, I truly believe that we can tell these as like our own real fairy tales. I mean, really, really important. And, uh, and you know, for me, I, it's, it's kind of important to, to recognize that. And um, these stories, I mean, Dracula, The Mummy, Frankenstein, they're actually really, really great 
great stories. I mean, they, they follow the human condition and, and, and you know, these characters, they go through a whole range of emotions that, that, that you know, people experience every day. Uh, and I mean, I, for me, as, as a child watching this stuff, I mean, it really, really hit me on an emotional level, you know, because it, I, I, I felt a, a, a bit like I was an outsider and an outcast when I was younger, and I could relate to these these monsters, you know, who, who had trouble fitting in. And, you know, they wanted to go. You know, there's no way they're gonna get them, you know. And, and, you know, I just and they just wanted to have friends, but you know, they got chased up the hill. And, you know, <laughs> You ended up pretty, with a pretty good woman, by the way, so you can't relate too much to the to those monsters. Uh, but I, let's take a look at this poster here. What I'd like to um, inspire people here uh, to go up into the galleries and undertake some really close looking. Uh, some, instead of just walking by and saying, wow, and moving on to the next one, you stop and you look at a poster for a while. You see lots of things that you didn't otherwise, wouldn't otherwise notice. And a lot of these posters really warrant that kind of close looking. So you've spoken a lot about this poster, as so many of them give you so many insights. Just look at this poster for a while and tell me what it is you like about it. Well, I just, uh, you know, I, it's amazing because when it came up on the screen, I just realized something else about this poster that I never really realized before. Um, and I'll share that with you. But um, okay, so you, you know the eyes are kind of just floating down. Um, okay, so behind the, the Dracula lettering, I, I always thought it looked like a silhouette of a head. You know, I, I need to see it. And I think maybe what the artist thought or was trying to do was to, to make the silhouette of the head and the eyes maybe maybe to make use it to convey a, a kind of like looking down and coming at, at, at its victim, the woman. You know, that's kind of what I, you know, just got just from looking at it just right now. But I mean, in general, when I, when I see this poster, it's really amazing because it's, it's so, again, sexually suggestive. And I can't help it. When I see those eyes, I think of, I think of, Women's breasts? I can't <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's pure coincidence. <laughs> to this day. You get, you get, you get. That's not why I have, I have this post-question. <laughs> <laughs> so on, on my guitar, the eyes light up. <laughs> so there's a question I was looking at now. What is the image, and I didn't leave it that way, but that's even better. Um, what do you like about some of the imagery in the poster or two upstairs that people have to go look for on their own right now? Is there something that you think is particularly novel? Well, I mean, uh, okay, so uh, one, one theme that, that runs through a lot of these posters is that they, a lot of these movies were made in the 20s and 30s, and so there's a real distinct art deco theme that, that runs through a lot of them. And you know, that's something that's just kind of really kind of like fun and cool and easy to like spot, you know, from poster to poster. But you know, the vibrance of, the vibrance of every poster is different. You know, and, and, uh, every poster has a, a, a kind of like a different illumination coming off of it. Some posters are darker than other posters. Some posters are brighter. Yeah, it's maybe just my my perception of, of it, but you know, some just like really jump out and scream at you, and some just kind of like, you know, really, really draw you in and just kind of invite you in, in, into the poster. So, and some of them just have amazing little silly anecdotes that you have to know the inside of track on to so, yeah, I mean, a, a, a lot of the posters, like in the in the 50s, amazingly enough, were, were designed first, and then the movie was made afterwards. I mean, if you can believe that, like a good example is Invasion of the Sausman. They designed the, the poster first and the concept first, and then they made the movie, which is like totally backwards. I mean, it's like. <laughs> 
Signing a can and, and then filling it with whatever it's decided for, you know. <laughs> so, so tell us about the Bride of Frankenstein. Oh yeah. Go on. Do we do we have a? a, a no, we don't. We have to go look yeah. for it later. So, okay. So I, earlier I was talking about how how the, the, a lot of these illustrators would be on set, kind of observing everything and uh, taking notes. And I think for 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 whoever the illustrator was on this set of Bride of Frankenstein, there's a poster upstairs, and uh, there's a, a picture of Elsa. Manchester drinking tea, and it's on the poster, and it's, it's well known that 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 that, that when she was that particular image of her drinking tea was taken by a photographer during a break in between scenes, and you can see her without her wig, and she's like laying like. Down all, all wrapped up, all wrapped up, and she has like her cup of tea, and it, it's not a scene from the movie, but it's on the movie poster. It's on the movie poster, and it's hilarious because the illustrator must have seen that and said, "Oh, okay, I'm going to draw that, and put that on the poster." No one ever told him that that wasn't a scene in the movie. It's amazing. Nobody questioned it. No one questioned it. They made it through production, you know. <laughs> so let's look at another. So I was really impressed when you uh, pointed out to me that the scene, uh, in fact, this whole poster is uh, generated. Uh, this scene and poster, you've obviously watched a lot of these films very, very closely. Yeah, yeah uh, that scene doesn't really, really exist. In, uh, in the film. A, a version of it is, is close, but it doesn't really exist, but it, it's, 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 it's close enough and it's super provocative. What's really amazing about this poster is that um, James Whale, who, who, who directed Frankenstein, was not the original director. It was a, a a, a man named Robert Flory, who, who was, was signed on to direct Frankenstein. And this particular poster has both directors on, on it, both Robert Flory and James Whale. And, and that's what makes this, one of, the, one of the things that makes this poster, for me, particularly interesting, is that they actually credited both directors. Robert Flory had a lot to do with the movie, but he never w was was credited on any of the American posters. On this particular poster, this French poster, he actually got a credit, which I, I thought was really, really cool. Isn't this poster unique? Is there another? Yeah, there's a, it's, a, it's the only one that, that they exist. Like a lot of the posters you'll see, like the Nosferatu poster, that's only, it's the only one known to exist. This poster's the only one known to exist. There's a number of them upstairs. They're just one of a kind pieces and Martin and Zeal. Yeah, so um, I thought I had known Frankenstein before I saw this poster and I looked at it and thought, that's an odd scene. I don't remember that scene. Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a, a, it's like someone who like, saw the movie and then thought, hmm. What was that scene like? I can't really remember. <laughs> it went like this. <laughs> but you know, it captures the essence of the movie. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, it really does. So let's talk about a couple of your newest additions to your collection, which I'm pretty impressed are upstairs. Um, yes. I love the crazy crayon strokes that, that the graphic pencil. in person. I had just acquired it last year and, uh, and, and so I was very happy to see it. And yes, the, you know, the, there, there are marks behind his head that I've never seen before that kind of give it kind of like uh, a motion like he's kind of like almost flying through the air. And uh, it's, I was I'm really surprised to see that. 
because again, I've never actually had the opportunity to get really close to this poster. This poster is one of two known to exist. This particular poster was discovered only last year. Um, it was owned by a person who collected movie posters before anyone collected movie posters, which is amazing. And, um, and I, I guess um, their, editor, their descendants or whoever acquired this poster and saw it and thought, oh wow, this is important. And that's how I acquired it. The richness of color is really astounding. The richness of color. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's, a, it's amazing because it's, a, it's in really, really great condition. Um, the, the first colors to go when a movie poster is seen too much light or too much sunlight or too, too much UV light, the first colors to go are usually the yellow, yellows and the oranges. With this particular poster, the yellows just like it looks so, so rich. I mean, this poster has been well stored and has not seen very much light at all. So um, you must be a fan of things flying through the air because of the one next to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The original art yeah. for Invasion of the Saucerman. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, Invasion of the Saucerman. This is this is the artwork. One one of the uh, one of the posters that was designed before the movie was actually made. And you know, I can see. I mean, by looking at this art, there's you know, there's a there's there's a of there's a lot of. Um, my inspiration to write a story here by looking at this painting. Um, this movie, if you've ever seen it, it's a really fun movie if you're like 10 years old. <laughs> it's, uh, and you know, it's entertaining now if, if you watch it and pretend you're 10 years old. Um, but yeah, for me, it's always had a, a you know, a special place because I, I love, I love the, the way the aliens look. They're like sort of little green men, the big heads, just like you would think little green men would look. And uh, this original art, it's ama amazing because original movie poster art is really, really rare and hard to find, and examples of it of it, or they just don't come up. This this piece was found in uh, an antique store in Florida, of all places, last year, and I think the person who got it paid made, like maybe two dollars for it, and uh, realized what they had, and so they put it in the auction house, and, and now it's here for everyone else to see. So the original art, I mean, from the 50s, that's really in the grand scheme of things, not that long ago. Why do you think that more of this stuff was not preserved? Why is it not out there? Yeah, you know, I, I really don't know. I, I, I mean, it, there could be any 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 sort of answer for that, but it it seems like the appreciation for this kind of stuff just wasn't there, and and people didn't didn't consider that maybe in the future. It might be important to someone, someone like me. Yeah, you just <laughs> part of a process of something. Yeah, I mean it's. I mean, it, when you think about it, it really is an abstract notion. It's like to me, like picking this up and saying, "This is going to be worth something in like seventy-five years." But right now, it's not worth anything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, that's when you really think about it. I mean, collecting. I mean. Things need time to 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 to, to, to like uh, gain value. It seems like I mean, no one thought about keeping movie posters. They were just taken for granted. That's why there's there's hardly any of them. That's why there's only two of the, these Dracula posters. I mean, people just took it for granted and didn't really think that they'd be things of value or would be important to anyone in the future. So. In the past, you've said uh, that you're kind of a shy person and you're a private person. I appreciate, I'm sure everyone appreciates you exposing your inner thoughts and some of your personal um, collecting activities with all of us here. Yet you clearly have no trouble 
stepping out in front of an audience of 60,000 people and doing your thing. Tonight's a piece of cake, it's only 600 years Is doing something like that, does that give you a similar emotional charge as watching film or looking at your collection? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm such a creature of habit, I will only do things that, 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 that I, I know will have a certain outcome than <laughs> anyone else. Um, but I mean, you know, getting lost in a horror movie is, is not that far away from me getting lost in my guitar playing. And you know, when I'm out, and when I'm playing it, I'm playing it with the band, and I'm, I'm concentrating on, on playing my instrument and interacting with the band, a lot of things in my life just disappear. And a lot of times, I mean, don't take this personally, but sometimes the audience even disappears. I'm just, it's just so much in the process. And, and it's, it's similar to like, you know, being lost in a really great book or a really great movie. I mean, it, 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 it takes me someplace where I, I want to be, you know, and I feel safe and I feel inspired. So there's a strong relationship and the emotional charge and what you seek yeah. in your life. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, yeah. I seek congruency in, in, in the things that, that, that I'm curious about and, 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 and you know, and, and I, I, I really love, even, even though it, you know, I, I'm shy and, and I, I, I'm a creature of habit, I love the unpredictability of music. I love the unpredictability of the horror genre. You know, in other parts of my life, I love that, like the unpredictability of like surfing or or the unpredictability of improvising. You know, playing my instrument. Um, but it's almost like organized unpredictability. It's unpredictability within a confine, and you know. That's why I like horror. It's a, it's unpredictable, but I know what type of unpredictable. Yet, uh, you have worked on a piece of music that is specifically designed sort of as an expression of how these films and these posters make you feel. I mean, it's a fantastic piece, um, and, and not at all the sound people would expect to come from you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Um, and, well, okay, so I wrote, along with, with my wife, Lonnie, wrote a, a piece of music called The Maiden and the Monster for, for, the, for the, the Peabody Essex show. And it's a piece that, that tells a story of, um, uh, um, in audio terms. And it kind of unfolds like a, like a film when it unfold. And it's meant to be played while you're observing everything. Uh, in, in the show. And uh, for this show, I composed a piece of music and uh, I wrote it with my wife, so I'm at the mercy of, a, of, of, of her whims. <laughs> she just signed off on it today. Uh, yeah. We were supposed to have it last week, but uh, it will come to, to the museum and we'll at some point will be available for people to hear. Uh, it's this second piece of music, it, it's instrumental as well as the first, and it's called The Gin. And um, The Gin is a, 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 a Middle Eastern term for gene. And uh, again, it's an audio, kind of an audio story that unfolds. And, um, and the title, The Gin, Hopefully, we'll just kind of set the mood for for, for uh, how you experience the music because uh, it, it it tells a story of the gin. So that's a new creative direction for you. So today is somewhat of a sort of a culminating moment for you in a way. You, you know, it, it's a crescendo, if I may borrow a musical kind of term. Um, so you have a show, you have a new book. And, something that shows off like at least 30 years of your collecting activities, right? So now you're 
where your interest as a collector heading next, if you care to divulge? Um, are there facets that you want to explore that you haven't yet? Are there any directions that you want to go, like such as this, this musical piece, for instance? Well, you know, I, I'm getting more and, and more into classical music, classical composers, and, uh, and, and a lot of classical composers take on, on, on the horror genre. There's a, quite a few composers who, who were like the first soundtrack music, wrote the first soundtrack music. I mean, really, I mean, uh, Modest Vysorsky wrote Night on Ball Mountain. And if, if anyone knows that, that piece, Night on Ball Mountain, that's like, that's, it, it's, it's a soundtrack to, to the, any horror movie that was made in the 20s or 30s. I mean, and so I want to go into that direction, really. I want to, I want to, I want to start orchestrating music uh, and, and telling musical stories through, through music in much the same way as a lot of these classical guys, classical guys did in the 19th century, 20th century. I mean, that's a, a, a real, real curiosity of mine. And it comes at a good time because in September, we're going to be playing two shows with the San Francisco Symphony, and I'm going to be I'm, 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 uh, immersed in all sorts of, uh, of uh, classical music and classical musicians, and it's going to be great. Fantastic. Well, maybe you can inspire them to play Swan Lake because I do know yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Since you pointed that out, Swan Lake is in, in like almost every every uh, 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 horror movie in 1931, 1932, 1933. Thank mm -hmm. you. 